News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Joining us are Councilman Jimmy Van Bramer, Daily Beast Special New York Fashion Week correspondent, and my wife, Sarah Shears, Ace Courts reporter, Victoria Bekempis, Community Voices Heard Executive Director, Afia Adamensa, and Sexual Harassment Working Group members, Rita Passarell and Patricia Gunning. Joining us now is Queens City Council member Jimmy Van Bramer, who's going to discuss the Amazon deal, and his colleague Ruben Diaz Sr. I see, I see you in the uh, New York Times today, Wednesday, with this interesting contrast with, uh, with with Giannaris, who's suddenly offering a little give. You're saying absolutely no way. Um, Democrats control New York now. Tax revenue is plunging, and you're saying this Amazon deal is uh, is simply no good. It's not a question of negotiating. Um, why? Because if we claim to be a union town and we as progressive Democratic elected officials believe that that is a line in the sand, and and I believe that, then we've got to uh, say very clearly and unequivocally that if Amazon is coming to New York and declaring, they won't remain neutral and they're going to try and fight and destroy any efforts on the part of any of their workers to organize – that should be a disqualifier. They uh, refuse to answer questions about whether or not they work with ICE, how much uh, technology they share with ICE, what the nature of that deal is, how much money they make from those contracts. There are so many issues with the deal. And so what I have said and what David Goodman rightly asked is, well, what what is what are your bottom lines here? And that was, I think, the nature of the article is to go to everyone here and say, What's your bottom line, right? Is there anything that could get you into a place where you could accept the deal? Would those issues still apply if there hadn't been this deal negotiated with an NDA with the governor and the mayor? Like, is this generally where the city council should be looking into uh, into private business deals? Um, you know, how companies relate to ICE, what their labor policies are. As, as the council has sort of grown in strength and asserted itself, is this more broadly the case or is this unique to this circumstance? I, well, I think this circumstance is unique in and of itself. But I think that we should use this as uh, an inflection point to uh, demonstrate our power and take a look at other kinds of deals. Look again at economic development deals and how they're structured and how much is given and how much is returned and challenge the assumptions that we've all sort of operated on for the last several decades, uh, certainly since EDC and ESD became the power players that they are and the ones who craft these economic development deals. This deal is so big. Amazon is so large. The payout is so big. And the way it was done is so egregious that yes, it deserves special attention and extra <laughs> criticism and scrutiny, which is what we're trying to do. Because we were cut out of the process, because the mayor and the governor conspired in secret with all these NDAs and with no one being able to know anything, the council has a right and I think an obligation to actually uh, dive in uh, and ask really, really difficult questions and demand of Amazon – and accountability, I don't think they're used to really having to deal with. I mean, they seem shocked that we're asking these questions. They seem unprepared for these questions, which yes. is remarkable mm-hmm. because if you were watching anything and you know anything about New York, you know anything about the council, 
we're going to be a lot more in your face and we're going to – and you know we're angry, right? You know that how this was done and yet and yet when Corey asks, are you going to remain neutral, Bill Heisman, who I imagine you know makes an awful lot of money uh, to, to answer these kinds of questions on behalf of Jeff Bezos, says – yeah, no, we're 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 not remaining neutral. We're we're fighting them. We're gonna like, and we're not talking about people who make a million dollars, right? Or, although I think everybody should be able to organize if they want to organize. But what he was saying is that those those distribution center workers in Staten Island and Long Island and Queens and now the Bronx, those warehouse workers, no, 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 no. Those are people who make who make what twenty dollars an hour. We're gonna fight them. Right. That's who we're gonna fight. Could and this have that's outrageous. We should all be outraged by that. Under uh, under Melissa Mark Viverito, you brought up Corey, Corey Johnson, Johnson, who's the new council speaker and has had a uh, a more co-equal relationship with the mayor, I think, than the previous speaker is now running for public advocate. I absolutely think that Corey Johnson and this city council are standing up and asserting a lot more – uh, independence and power. And that's not uh, a, a swipe at uh, Melissa, who, you know, I think did some very good things as speaker. But obviously, they had a relationship formed of uh, his support for her speakership. And I think that was something that she she sought to uh, deal with and assert some independence with and did. But I think Corey comes in in a different place. And we as a council have gone after the mayor, attacked the mayor, challenged the mayor a lot more in just the last, what is it, 14 months than we did in the prior four years. So this sort of takes us to Ruben, Ruben Diaz, Diaz Sr. Sr. Um, you've now called on him to uh, resign. I believe the speaker has. Um, what confuses me here um, is that this guy has been – saying hateful things, the same sort, for decades. And as best I can tell, he'd been a council member in good standing with like his own sort of custom committee until uh, this latest statement um, and, and a New York One reporter picking up on a Spanish language interview. Like, why now? Um, what's changed? Nothing has changed for me. Uh, Gay City News did uh, a story Two years ago, when the, the council member was running for the seat from the state senate and asked a lot of us, including those of us who were running for speaker, and I was in the speaker race at the time, what we thought of Ruben Diaz Sr. And I knew that if I took a stand and, and, and challenged him and said he shouldn't be in the New York City Council, he doesn't deserve to be in the New York City Council, I don't want him in the city council, that that would hurt me in the speaker race. Now, I'm not saying that's why I didn't become the speaker, right? Mm -hmm. I was uh, a long shot in that race. But I decided, because I know of his history, because I was so offended way back in 1994 when as a young gay man, right. I was going to the gay games, you know, really excited with my then boyfriend from the Bronx. And it was really exciting times for us. And <laughs> That's another podcast. Yeah, episode. that one. Uh, more fun and more interesting. But the... The things that he said that summer have stuck with me for 25 years. And what I have said is what I will always say, which I said in that article, is 
1994, uh, people were still dying of AIDS mm -hmm. very regularly and very quickly. Protease inhibitors only came online in 1996. And I saw people dying. And I knew that in those hospitals all over New York City were gay men who were dying of AIDS. And the last thing that they saw or heard, some of them, was this obscure reverend who sat on the CCRB telling us – Civilian Complaint Review Board. That's right. Who don't know. That they – that they deserved to die in many ways because they were pariahs and they were disgusting and that having the gay games was going to spread AIDS all over New York City. I have never forgotten that. I will never forget that. I will never forgive him. And Juan Manuel Benitez did a great job in uncovering this, but also bringing back the things he said 10 years ago with him comparing mm -hmm. sex between men to bestiality and all sorts of things. So for me, I've been incredibly consistent. And when I saw those comments and my husband and I were sitting there in, in our home in Queens, I said to myself and he said, you, we can't just go along with this, right? We're not going to do the safe thing and call for an apology. And that's when I wrote that very personal tweet and called for him to resign. I'm proud to be the first council member to do that. But it seems like nothing is new with DS Senior. So I, I think for me what's confusing is that he has been who he's always been. So why right now? I mean, I don't understand why more members of the council, why more members of the state senate haven't been calling for him to not be a representative consistently over the past 25 years and do more during the election season to make sure voters have context as to how dangerous his rhetoric is, even if they may agree with it. Because clearly some people do agree with it because he keeps getting reelected. I'm the victim. I'm the one that's being harassed. I'm the one that's been bullied. Tonight, Councilman Ruben Diaz Sr. standing defiant as political pressure around him heats up. They're demanding every elected official to come and denounce me. For 20 years, Diaz has been deeply involved in city politics, grabbing attention with his cowboy hats and outspoken opinions. Now calls are intensifying for Diaz to end his political career after he recently said the city council is, quote, controlled by the homosexual community. So I think that's the the confusion I have as to why more elected officials, and I think I have an answer to that so far as convenience and coalition building across the five boroughs, but... Including the speaker. Including the speaker. Who won that race. Um, and the necessity of, you know, some Manhattan Bronx alliances, etc., for future races. But this seems as though uh, it, it isn't a necessarily accumulation of all the horrific things that he said over the years. It seems like a spark that somehow has caught fire. I mean, can you sort of contextualize that a little bit more for our listeners? Well, look, I do believe that the Bronx County Democratic establishment, if you will, has protected him and, uh, and their power has in some ways inoculated him, mm -hmm. right? Some people have been afraid to go after him because of what that could mean for their own careers. Um, having said that, I do think that what he said here, there is a level of, of, of hatred, paranoia, fear, homophobia 
in these comments that I find particularly disturbing as a gay man who actually ran for office and got elected in Western Queens, a neighborhood that 20, 30 years ago would have never elected an openly gay man, right? Mm -hmm. That somehow uh, um, we have achieved too much power, that our power is to be feared and that and that what are they doing with all that power, right? He's raising with that seemingly uh, offhanded comment the specter of an all-powerful, all-consuming evil agenda, which I, I, I feel is particularly uh, harmful. It goes way beyond simply a, a conservative Christian belief mm-hmm. system or ethos. It is, it is really, really damaging um, to someone uh, like, like me and to the 11-year-old kids who are struggling with their orientation or identity in his district. He, uh, so, so Diaz has sort of brought this up to say, see, I told you that the gays were powerful, and now you see what they do when someone speaks up about this. Um, and with this sort of threat that he could lose his, uh, his committee leadership, that he uh, could be pushed to resign. Uh, the Daily News today had what I thought was a really interesting editorial you might have read um, talking about him and about uh, um, Ilan Omar, the, uh, the newly elected um, female Muslim rep- uh, member of uh, Congress who uh, gave comments about uh, APAC that, that, yep. that many people found anti-Semitic, others did not. Anyways, arguing that, that no, you can't, uh, you can't punish them um, legislatively because their voters brought them there and they are literally – Representatives. Um, that, that that's not the uh, the appropriate answer. Um, short of committing crimes or egregiously abusing their power, they can keep it up at least until the next election, since they were elected by constituents who knew full well what kind of speech they were prone to engage in. Should he keep his? Uh, should he keep the 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 committee that he now uh, chairs? Should he should he resign, or is this what he was elected for? I absolutely believe that he should not keep the committee that he has. I absolutely believe he should resign. This just in. Hours after FAQ's conversation with Van Bramer, he voted to dissolve the four higher vehicles committee Diaz had chaired. The measure passed with 45 yeses, one no, and three abstentions. I disagree with the Daily News editorial. I think that in this day and age, we understand that hate speech often leads to hate crimes. Mm-hmm. There is a violent element to his speech, which which strikes right at the core and at the heart of LGBTQ people. And we've seen it with the president and we see it here, that when people in positions of leadership, elected leadership, demonize a community and speak about a community the way we do, it encourages others to act out on their hatred. And so somewhere, I firmly believe this, there will be a hate crime emboldened by this kind of talk and rhetoric, right? Some queer couple walking through the streets of the village is going to get beat up in part because, see, people hear these things and believe that they're justified in doing so because if a council member and a reverend can talk like this about LGBTQ people, they are justified in attacking. And also, and I, and I was a gay kid who thought about committing suicide and jumping off the roof of our apartment building because it was better to be dead than to be a gay man. I thought that when I was a teenager. Today, somewhere in the Bronx and in Queens, there are teenagers teenagers having that exact same conversation in their heads. And when they hear a council member and a reverend talk about queer people like this, are they more likely to jump off that roof 
or are they less likely? Are they more likely to say, you know what, I can actually make a go of this. The world is not going to hate me for the rest of my life. And I am going to be an openly gay person and live a proud life. I ran for office in part to send the reverse message, right, that you can be open, you can be out, you can be married, and you can get elected and actually accumulate some personal power, but then also power for our community. And what he's saying is that the five of us who managed to survive and not kill ourselves, not jump off roofs, right, that the five of us, less than 10% of the city council is too much. Mm -hmm. We have too much power. That is so wrong. So – Yes, he absolutely should lose his committee, and he, I believe he absolutely should resign. Well, there it is, folks. Um, listen, I want to thank you so much for coming on, um, and hopefully our listeners, um, for those of you who didn't necessarily agree with you, have learned something today. Um, I also want to just give a shout-out to Fierce, which is a great organization Amen. in New York that supports LGBTQ youth of color, and the Grio Circle, another yep. great organization that supports LGBTQ elderly folks of color. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. A few minutes later, Harry remembered a few things he'd meant to ask. So Harry, Harry. Who's the next district attorney? Who's the next borough president? I hope I'm the next borough president. And I hope a progressive uh, person who is not uh, uh, a creature of the county organization is the next district attorney of Queens. Is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the uh, the boss of Democratic Progressive Brooklyn now? Is she calling the tunes? I don't think she would want to be the boss of the Queen's Democratic Party, but I think she has the the moral um, impetus behind what could be a movement that be that creates a more democratic Democratic Party in Queens that is broken away from the machine politics of the past. I think that's up to her to decide how much time and political capital she's going to want to expend to do that. I hope she gets fully engaged in that effort because I think Queens would be better off if we had uh, um, a system that wasn't about political machines and cronyism, but more about progressive ideas and people being able to run when they want to run. And very last thing, how valuable has her opposition to the Amazon deal been, particularly with de Blasio, who says she comes from the same wing of the uh, Democratic Party as him? I think, well, there's a lot of work going on the ground. It is incredibly helpful to have someone with the microphone that she possesses right now in this country weighing in against the Amazon deal. Thank you again. Thank you. And now we'll hear from Sarah Shears, who's at New York Fashion Week. Well, this week's Fashion Week was a sort of very, very glittery, glitzy affair, very uh, Gatsby-esque in all of its excess, which was really beautiful and fun in the moment, but sort of leaves you feeling a little empty afterwards, I guess. There's one show, though, that really embodied that sort of Gatsby-esque quality, and I'd say that was the Philip Klein show up at 57th Street in the Seagram building. Um, it took place at the Pole of the Girl, where the old Four Seasons restaurant used to be, and it was just this sort of very crazy spectacle of an event where just getting in, even with invitations, was 
kind of like night a nightmare with the security guards not having any idea what they're doing and then threatening the whole crowd that they weren't going to let anyone in. And then Paris Hilton and Michael K. Williams showed up. And they, of course, were not stuck in Lyme purgatory and they went right through. And so eventually, once you were in, there was like a, a like a little jazz band singing, you know, like jazz standards, like heaven, I'm in heaven. And it, because everyone, cheek to cheek, everyone was decked out in like fur and like, you know, sort of like bedazzled dresses and velvet. It was really, really just you know, beautiful and gilded and gilt inside. And then once the show started, it was a whole bunch of male models that were mostly in their 50s and 60s that were extraordinarily handsome and not the usual model type for shows who came out wearing the most sort of 1920s English countryside sort of dandyish sportswear um, that was pretty incredible and actually for Philip Klein quite subtle, although not at all. And then the, and it ended with Mickey Burke. There was there was dinner. There was dinner for uh, important people, which this reporter did not qualify as. There was a three-course meal. Um, they advertise it as a three-course meal for, for everybody. But then if you weren't important, they sort of pinned you in a, a little corner where there was like an open bar, and then they tried to make you happy with that. Everybody who's anybody. So Mickey Rourke ended the first show with the designer coming out carrying what I think was like a little Pomeranian dog on a leash. It was just like weird and like nonsensical and like totally unnecessary. But, you know, that is the point of excess. And then the next show was this sort of like nudie con, Ed Hardy, Patricia Field, like tartan, fringed bedazzled western thing that just kept coming out in like shades of neon and fur and studded like every 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 look was more just more of more than the next and then the rapper uh, Little Pump who I'm excuse me so I think this is like Elvis and Dolly's unwanted love child's clothing. And then... <laughs> no, it's like... I believe like, it's Lil Pump, L-I-L, not yeah, Little Pump. Oh, yeah, my bad. So it, it, it's it's definitely Elvis and Dolly's illegitimate love child, then dressed by, like, a blind Sid Vicious. Like... Was Little Pump dressed that way? Yes, yes, he was. Um, Lil Pump. Ended the the second runway show and then went immediately to the stage and started singing his hit song with Kanye West, You're Such a Fucking Hoe, which really, you know, oh yeah, I think the name of it is like, I love it. And then Paris Hilton was dancing around, singing the lyrics, You're Such a Fucking Hoe, like at the front. And then blowing kisses to the rest of the people there. It was so strange. I actually ran into Paris Hilton in the hallway and um, tried to snap a photo, which was the sort of the most amazing experience I've ever had taking a photo of anyone. So like a ninja, she whips out her cell phone 
and uses it as her own personal lighting. And I snap some photos and I tell her, oh, you're gorgeous to keep her from walking away so I can get an actual photo that isn't blurry. And she turns and says to me, um, yeah. Will counsel please approach the bench? We got in the courts with Victoria Bekempis. This is uh, In the Courts with Victoria Bekempis, and I am finally back to hang out with, like, my favorite person ever. I'm so glad you're back. I, I'm, and I also, I also feel better that you've had extensive martial arts training now because I feel more safe when we're together. Like, you know, like— we're yeah. usually together inside. Yeah. So, like, yeah, but, you know, whatever happens from, like, weird inside monsters. Well, if somebody, like, you know, descends from a roof and, like, crashes through your window with, what is it called? Repelling? Oh, that like repel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. like Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, it, he repels down with that string. Yeah. Like, wearing, uh, what is it, night vision night or whatever? Night vision. Yeah. Night vision and, like, really tight clothing yeah. that probably yeah. wicks away sweat. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, no, I could definitely just Muay Thai the shit out of him. <laughs> and I could at least take some, you know, like video on my phone. I won't know how to upload it to anything. Um, it'll probably be vertical video, so like completely unusable. But no. you'll look awesome. Yeah, I'm into vertical video that's unusable where I look awesome. I could show my friends. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, if I have any left after I like karate chop the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all I want to do now. Anyway, let's move on. What's happening in the courts? Well, uh, the big uh, court event this week was that um, uh, Mexican drug lord Joaquin uh, El Chapo Guzman was found guilty by a federal jury in Brooklyn on Tuesday. He was convicted on all 10 counts uh, on the sixth day of deliberations. And um, this didn't really come as a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, I can't imagine why it would have come as a surprise. A lot of evidence was presented against him. This was a marathon three-month trial. Um, And while, uh, you know, while obviously everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty, uh, the defense lawyers – had a one could definitely say an uphill battle. So this this did not come as a surprise to anyone. And the courtroom scene after you know the verdict was uh, was uh, read, um, there wasn't there wasn't really a lot of drama. Um, I think part of it is because there were a ton of U.S. marshals there, uh, given uh, Chapo's reputation as an incredibly dangerous and incredibly. Uh, able to escape, uh, you know, a person. Um, And these marshals, you know, warned people, no outbursts, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, I heard the the outside of the court was kind of a matter. Like, what did did I read the times that the guy who played El Chapo on some Netflix show was there? There's, like, people flew in, almost like court tourism. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was also, like, throughout the trial, it was definitely, like, I, you know, and, you know, obviously, I was not there every single day in the courtroom. But um, even then, you know, uh, there was, you know, a Netflix star who showed up on a couple of days um, to – you know, uh, according to you know reports, he was there to kind of get, you know get a better sense of the guy that he played. In one of our earlier episodes, you uh, reported that there was a cold, a pretty bad 
cold slash cough. <laughs> yes. Um, that was going around the, the, the courtroom, suppose, y- allegedly. Yes. So some of my – it wasn't a time when I was in the courtroom, but some – you know, people who I had talked to who were there told me that, you know, there was just this pervasive kind of phlegmy, wet cough that was in the courtroom uh, throughout the duration. But some of the things that I did see when I was there, um, there was a man who showed up and sat in the defense row, um, basically right next to where Emma would have sat. Um, and Emma's he, the wife? Yes. Yeah, uh. Emma Coronel's the wife. And he claimed to be uh, – initially claimed to be a relative of El Chapo and then some of the reporters – we're like, are, so how are you related? Um, you know, and he's and, like, not really at all. <laughs> oh, I'm kind of like, and he's like, well, I'm like friends of the family. I've got houses everywhere, and <laughs> then a court. Yeah. How and are then, you related? Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm really, vague yeah. friends and I've got houses everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, a court, you know, a, a, a marshal came into the court and was like, hey, you can't sit there. And he kind of had this like, I wouldn't call it a freak out. I wouldn't kind of a meltdown. I wouldn't call it a meltdown, but he was definitely like. A fluster. A f- he was very flustered and was like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. Like, you know, here's my – he just like showed him like an ID and – Here's my business card. Yeah. And like it was just like I'm family. You, so they said, sir, come with us. And, you, you know, and they had him sit in the overflow courtroom. Um, I don't uh, – How at, humiliating. <laughs> but at, at some point when he was in the overflow courtroom – at some point, um, his identity was like checked or something, and um, um, and it was determined that he had some open warrants. So then he was arrested by the U.S. Marshals, and is uh, and was ultimately taken into ICE custody. So that mm. was an interesting turn of events. There were El Chapo trial observers from foreign countries um, who came in. Um, many were really nice and just very interested in the court proceedings. The American justice system and its openness is something that is unique in the world. And, you know, everywhere in the world, people see syndicated television of these, you know, courtroom procedurals. And, um, you know, um, I spoke to two women uh, uh, who were there. One was from Spain and one was from France. And they were just, you know, they happened to be around and, you know, heard about it and wanted to see it. They thought it was interesting. And um, there was another man who was there um, just observing, and he was really nice. And, you know, moving back, some of the people who just came, you know, to observe were kind of like not, – not everyone who just randomly came to observe were, like, friendly. Like, some of them were kind of, you know, aggro and, like, making, you know – threats threats to people in some circumstance you know in some circumstances like some of them are a little like I love the idea of the agro court tourist well like that that's to me it's like it's like the accidental or the accidental uh well, those the, the people who were uh, agro weren't so much tourists as they were you know kind of like people were like why are you like like, why are you being so aggressive to people in line and insisting on cutting people in line? And, like, you know, like, one guy, like, you know, like, you know, th- th- threatens some a reporter like who Like, aggro gangster fans? Are they, like, are they, like, felon fans? Well, that was, I mean, there's so much, like, weirdness surrounding the trial. And, like, I think that in some senses it can be, you know, paranoia is it never, like, has, like, the, the connotation of being justified. But there was just so much weirdness surrounding the trial that when you had people around the trial who were acting, like, strangely aggressive, you're just kind of like, 
you know, it's on this, alert. You're, you're, you're on spidey alert. Sense yeah, your spidey off. sense is going My off. There was a time when uh, everyone had all the reporters had gotten there very, very early, and one group had gone to a diner uh, nearby. And there was this guy in the diner who was, like, taking photos and video of this group of reporters. And a second group of reporters that went, you know, I was in the second group that was at some point later. The same guy was there taking photos. And, you know, when we were like, hey, do you want us to smile? Like, why are you taking photos? You know, he got really aggressive. And so we're all just kind of thinking, like, what the heck is going on here? Like, it's just like. Are we being cataloged uh, yeah, for some and, sort of retribution? Yeah, I mean, and that's like totally like, a, you know, a, like a crazy thing to think, you know, but it's just like. Is it? There's considering this, how many journalists are dead in Mexico? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, but. we're all just kind of like, you know, tired. And then like you see something weird that's like could just. I mean, the guy could have just been like some art student that didn't, you know, like, like the, that we called him out. But um, it was just like, so there's like this like paranoia and it was like. I like that everyone, everyone's on high alert, getting paranoid, getting sick in the courtroom, super aggro, uh, you know, courtroom tourists, like El Chapo fans. I'm sure El Chapo fans were there. So tell me, talk to me a little bit about El Chapo's wife, Emma, uh, and like what, like, wh- what's going to happen to her now? Like, is she stuck in New York? Does she go back? Like, what's what's going on with that? Okay. So one v- criminal justice veteran, um, been in the industry for, like, 50 years, um, he said that, you know, Emma's not going to wind up living in some dark corner somewhere completely destitute, you know. He believes, and based on his observation of organized crime cases, that – you know, there's money somewhere. She's going to have access to it. And in some cases with very high profile organized crime figures, if for whatever reason there isn't money available, there's almost this pay it forward mentality even amongst rivals, right? So like, you know, people who might have opposed El Chapo might see like if she were in a bad position, they might say, you know, this this ex, you know person was telling me, they might say to themselves, oh my God, what if my wife, my family were in this position? And they might even like help her out. People said, I was like, well, is she in danger for like a hit or something? Some people told me like, absolutely not. That's just kind Kind of like a thing that's understood. Um, Rebecca Royfe, a professor of law, she's a former uh, prosecutor as well. She had told me that the issue of whether Emma has money is also contingent on a couple of things. One, of course, is how much did uh, El Chapo spend on his defense? And then the other question is, how will how will the the forfeiture issue come into play? The U.S. government wants to seize billions from El Chapo, and they can't leave her like a couple hundred grand. Uh, basically, in theory, from what I understand, is that any of his money that is linked and that can be you know that can be proven that there's a link to his drug activities, you know, is is up for grabs by the government. They can try to get it. Which government? The U.S. government. Really? Yeah, that's something that they're going that they're pushing for. What about what does Mexico have to say about this? Or do we not really know how that's working out? All right. Yeah, and that would um, be interesting. We should look into that. Yeah. Do another El Chapo. Yeah, and um, but the other you know, but the other thing that um. Royfe said is that, you know, um, you know, Cornell, depending on how she reacts to these forfeiture actions, could actually impact whether or not she has any, you know, whether or not there's going to be any legal issues toward her directly. Like if she tries to get in the way of collecting this money, that could be a big problem for her. Alternately, could it be a big problem for her or would it be 
could it possibly be a big problem for the government? Could that could those funds be tied up? It, well, if she tried to, if, well, basically, like if she tried to get in the way of this forfeiture action, like she could be on, like she could face some type of legal action against her by uh, prosecutors. Yeah. Um, and the other, and the same would go, like if there was money that, like you know, it. It's it's forfeiture is a very complicated thing, but basically, if she tries to get in the way of this forfeiture action, like that's not good. Um, and but um, you know, it is worth pointing out one former federal prosecutor who um, um, David Weinstein he had actually um, led the Southern District of Florida's International Drug Trafficking Unit. He told me that um, you know the money issue again. Will she have access? Well, it depends how well uh, Chapo's money was hidden. Was it in his name? Was it in her name? Was it in shell corporations? Like this is a very complicated thing. Um, now Weinstein did, you know, in in his work, he had he was not as optimistic, you know, about Emma's safety, um, and he had said that, like, in, you know, from what he'd seen. You know, the the idea that like being that El Chapo would still have like, you know, this this position where he was like untouchable and that his family was untouchable from what he's seen. He thinks that like, you know, if they want to care, if his rivals or whoever wants to carry out revenge, like they're not they're not really going to care. So, you know, uh, overall consensus that I saw is that like, you know, majority of the people I spoke to, Emma's going to be fine. Um, Royfi said uh, her money thing is going to depend on how, you know, the forfeiture actions. Um, and Weinstein, the lawyer I spoke to, said that, like, you know, the cartels uh, might not care so much that she is El Chapo's wife when it comes to her personal safety. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to imagine that to some degree the code of honor there is somewhat fluid. Um, I got a really important question, though, about this case. Okay, so I'm how, ready. Yeah, okay. I'm ready. Are you ready for the most I'm important so question? I'm so ready. Great. Let's How likely is it, in your opinion, your expert El Chapo opinion, are we going to see like some like action movie, fast, furious, uh, escape from Alcatraz kind of like huge blockbuster escape scenario from El Chapo? I mean, I think the real question here, Alex, is. Who's going to score the movie? You know, who's going to score the escape movie? Whether whether or not he escapes, I think, is kind of immaterial here. Like, who who's going to do the the music for the movie? That is a good fucking question. I know. So that's why you bring me on here because damn it, I ask the hard questions. All right, okay, this one. All right, just stick with me. It's a little crazy. Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo. He's done a lot of scores. And if you want to, like, harken back to this kind of, like, weird 80s vibe, but not the typical one that everyone's, like, throwing back to now and, like, the movie Drag and everything like that. Like, you know, just, like, just some straight-up 80s fucking, like, fanciful bullshit. I, you know, I favor, for the score, I favor John Carpenter here. I really do. Because, I mean, it kind of depends on the motif you want, sure. But, like, I don't know. Like, that just, I would say John Carpenter, or, or alternately, Mike Post. Um, he is the guy um, behind, I mean, he's a prolific uh, composer of television music. He's the guy behind all of the music for Law & Order. Um, I would say. Oh, you think it, maybe it should be some sort of, like, hip-hop mashup of, like, ding, ding. I don't know. I mean, 
mean, I just feel yeah, like right. I, I don't know. I mean, I just I just feel like there's so many possibilities for the music, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether where El Chapo will remain, and you know, it doesn't matter if he escapes or not no, because a movie to... is afoot, and the point is, who the fuck's gonna score it? Because yeah. you know, now that we enter New York. You got a lot of, like, opportunity for classic score, guitars, this kind of thing in, like, the South, in Mexico. But once El Chapo gets to New York with, like, them shutting down the Brooklyn Bridge to make sure no escape attempts happen as he was, like, being held in Manhattan and going to Brooklyn Court and, like, all that, you got, like, ambient sound. Oh, you could do, like, a Philip Glass thing. Is Philip Glass dead? What nobody, about nobody have they have knows. they done a, have they done a Blue Bloods episode about El Chapo? Oh, I, have they? I don't know. Have they done a Law and Order episode about El Chapo? I don't know. I mean, I'm like behind on my American police procedurals, admittedly. I'm super behind. I'm on so that. behind. I, all I did was like watch Thai TV shows and like kickboxing tournaments for the past you know, month and a half. Oh, I learned how to say some something. Ooh, say it. <laughs> now I'm nervous. I'm sorry. Yeah, handsome means low. Oh no, low means handsome. Okay. Yeah, I needed that a lot over there. <laughs> anyway, that's in the courts with Victoria Vikempis. Hey. With us now is Afia Atamensa, the executive director of Community Voices Heard. Okay, so we are here today with Afia Atamensa. Thank you so much for coming in of Community Voices Heard. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we just wanted a few things. Um, can you tell our listeners, A, what CVH does, um, and B, any particular projects that you all are working on right now? Sure. So thank you for asking, first of all. So Community Voices Heard, we are in our 25th year, and we are a community-based organizing institution. And so what does that mean? That means that we meet with people, we talk with them, build relationships, try and learn what the issues are that matter most to them, and then launch campaigns around it. So I'd say for those who know a little bit about organizing, it's a bit of a, like an Ella Baker meets Saul Linsky model, right? Mm. We, we care about building power uh, unapologetically for low-income communities across New York. So we're in New York City, Westchester, Orange, Dutchess, and Rockland County. Okay, and I should have said you are Afia Atamensa. Esquire, and you are the executive director of Community Voices Heard. I appreciate you for putting some respect on my name. Respect. Okay. Sprinkle it, even though I am Team Nigel when it comes to the Joe Off. Whoa. <laughs> Just as Shots fired. Break yourself, fool. <laughs> out the gate. Okay, so what are you all working on right now, um, in primarily in New York City, but if mm-hmm. there's something upstate that's of interest uh, to our listeners, can you just let us know? Sure. In New York City, our biggest campaign is around affordable housing. And I'd say that's parsed in two areas. One is around uh, the quagmire that is the New York City Housing Authority, uh, better known as NYCHA, NYCHA. and also around uh, rent stabilization and gentrification. So, you know, no small issues, things that right. we can solve in a week. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is fascinating to me because Harry and I obviously have talked a lot about Amazon mm-hmm. and Jeff Bezos and Long Island City and the possibility that Amazon will come to New York City. How are you all preparing, bracing yourselves for that possibility for the populations that you serve? Sure. I mean, listen, I think the Amazon deal is, is – particularly pernicious when you think about what's been going on with the mayor's rezoning plans, right? So Long Island City was one of the communities that was supposed to be rezoned. That already sent off a panic amongst the people who had lived in that neighborhood long before it was like 
all cool and how uh, Bloomberg had bought the hotels and the lofts. And so then you add this other layer of an Amazon coming. And what does that mean? Uh, mostly for folks who make, you know, less than a million dollars a year, there's a concern of the immediate is, is my rent going to go up? Right. Uh, what does that mean? Uh there's infrastructure issues that a lot of folks who live in the community name that, you know, the population in Queens has exploded over the last decade. You know, how many other people do I have to mush in the head before I get into the train now? All these new people are coming. Uh, issues of uh, economic justice, right? Who do these, let's say, 20 some odd thousand jobs, like 2,400 jobs or something, who do they go to? And who are they for? And then, you know, I started talking about NYCHA, NYCHA. and all the layers of savage inequalities there, right? The disinvestment at the federal, state, and local level. And it's telling that you have this, what could be a behemoth campus for this billionaire overshadowing the largest public housing development in North America when they're missing little menial things like heat and hot water, Mm -hmm. right? Like a roof that doesn't collapse on you, uh, toxic mold, lead. And to act as if, um, you know, the Amazon campus will be worth something because people who live in NYCHA developments will get access to resume building activities is it would be farcical in nature if it wasn't true. Right. And then what's the next layer is this is from, quote unquote, right, the the progressive icon mayor um, who is like gentrifying some real quotes on that. Yeah. Who is who is gentrifying the population that actually made him mayor. Right. Like he is helping to move out the population that allowed his mayoral to be possible. Is is just a lot. He also says he won't shop at Amazon himself. <sighs> but what? Uh, so this was presented by the mayor and the governor as this done deal, and they signed this NDA with Amazon. So no one no one knew what was being discussed mm-hmm. until it was here, here's what's coming. It's twenty five thousand jobs and all of these tax incentives they say are as a right. And now Amazon is floating the idea to the Washington Post at least that maybe they they would back out. Like, should they back out? Or, or what is it that they should be providing to make this a, a, a fair deal for, a, for, for regular workaday New Yorkers and people around them? I think there should be a reset here so that there's actually some, some clarity as to what uh, the goals are in the transaction, right? Like transparency has not been something that's pillar for either the mayor or the governor, right? They've been criticized for both. And then here you have this huge deal that even the local elected officials in the district really don't really know about. And as you said, there's non-disclosure agreements, so you can't really tell what's in the sausage. So there should be a moment of like a, just a reset to lift up what are guiding principles that most New Yorkers would want if Amazon would come. And I, you know, I assume that would be, you know, for Amazon to make an investment that is similar in nature to the investment that New York is making in Amazon, right? Uh, if we're going to believe that Jeff Bezos is this person who has this amazing vision and we give him credit, he had enough vision to do Amazon, what would it look like if Amazon was a partner in helping to deal with some of the infrastructure issues that New York City is facing, right? Since their employees would be subject to some of that same thing. They're uh, adding a helipad. Well, yeah, I was about to say. That's that's the transportation for one person, <laughs> right. maybe two. Um, you know, so it... And it's just it makes, I think, the mayor have an even more difficult time to continue to go to Albany and ask for a millionaire's tax when he's not taxing the billionaire he's trying to woo here. But but I mean, go ahead. Here's you, the, you, you guys can fist bump. I was about to, <laughs> but the mayor's not going to Albany, sweet pea, because he's in New Hampshire. <sighs> Alas. Alas. He, he now, too wants to be I president. Mean, but, but to bring it back, because, you know, you all are a member led organization, <laughs> primarily uh, people of color, primarily women of color, if I'm correct. correct. So what does organizing look like for you all when you're going up against a mayor and a governor who are clearly 
they've already been bought and sold. Mm -hmm. And literally, you're going up against the wealthiest man in America. Thanks for asking that question. You know, organizing forces people who have been told time and again that they have no power to think differently about the power of their relationships, right? What does it look like if you have, you're one person, you have an issue or you have a problem, but if you can talk to your neighbors, talk to the folks who you go to in your hair salon, talk to the parents at your kid's school, you realize that there's a commonality and it becomes an issue that you can organize around, that you can get people behind and have them come out and really force people not just to their better angels, but to their interests. Uh, And I think you've seen that type of really great dynamic organizing with some of the people who are part of this uh, no Amazon campaign, right? Where folks from public housing, faith leaders, uh, some labor unions, and just folks of good conscience who have questions about things like infrastructure and fairness have come together and have, in fact, put the governor back on his heels, right? Um, We always talk about elections matter. And now it's not three men in the room. It's a sister in the room as well. And, and she made the bold move as putting Senator Gineris in that uh, oversight committee that will have some say in that deal. And he's been organized right by his constituents to really uh, give pause to that deal. So I think it's a real testament to how folks can come together and slow down one of the richest men in the world. That's Andrea Stewart Cousins, who is putting one of the most, who's now the majority leader of the state Senate. Correct. Is putting one of the most vocal critics of the deal uh, on and this that's panel. That's translating sister. Yes. Oh, so, I appreciate you. <laughs> that may need to unanimously approve the deal. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's a that's a real difference. Cuomo's now saying if we have to re- discuss any of this, uh, someone else is just going to uh, snatch up uh, all those jobs and all that sweet tax revenue. Like, is that is that a reasonable? Well, I think to to and and thank you for translating that. Uh, to Senator uh, Stewart Cousins' credit, right, she, I think, was clear about what she was doing when she appointed Senator Janaris there. And I think it's the same type of, of uh, you know, scare tactics that have been used in almost every method, right? Like landlords, if I have to invest more money in this building, I'm not going to build anymore. If I have to actually um, do a deal that's fair for New Yorkers, I'm just going to go somewhere else where I can be unfair, right? It's those types of scare tactics that have been used time and again. Um, and we have to be clear that Amazon would benefit a lot from being in New York City, right? And we have to ensure that uh, the relationship is reciprocal. Right. Now, what about the people in NYCHA? Um because that's always been – I've been very vocal that I'm, I'm not into the deal. Um, I don't like things that are done in the dark and presented to me um, as done. Right. I also think if you have to sign an NDA, that uh-huh. is highly problematic for me. Um, so I, I see where people can move from activism to organizing. But for NYCHA residents specifically who, who um, may not have – the type of agency is, is say, non-NYCHA residents. How is CVH kind of working with that particular population? Because they have some real, they have real infrastructure issues and also um, are oftentimes the least respected when it comes to elected officials and when it comes to these conversations. 100%. So in our working with and building bases and public housing developments across the city, we do leadership development training where folks can really break down and understand just a different level of politics, right? Like who is responsible, uh, who has the power to move things. Oftentimes, uh, residents of public housing are put off to bureaucrats who have absolutely no power, Mm -hmm. right? So we talk about things like power, right? Who has the decision, who has the authority to make a decision, not wasting your time with folks who will just pacify you. And then also, frankly, talking about what the macro issues are. Yes, your 
your bathroom is messed up. It's horrible and it's wrong. Um, and but there's a system in place where it's OK for almost half a million people to be living without proper heat and hot water and mold and toxic lead. Um, so we really work on structural issues, talk to folks about that and let folks learn how to advocate better for themselves with power and numbers. So, you know, we were excited last year that we were successful in advocating for the largest amount that New York City has ever given to NYCHA, which is the $623 million. A far cry from what's needed, um, but a good beginning. Mm-hmm. And so we look forward to uh, continuing to bring it hot and heavy to uh, the <laughs> mayor and the governor uh, and really pushing him to do more than take pictures. The election season is over. Mm-hmm. It's time to put up. Is there any way? Thank you so much for coming in, yeah. going through a bit of this. If you're if you're in Queensbridge, which, you know, is the public housing capital of America, of the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you're looking for people to pressure, is it right now? Is it de Blasio? Is it Cuomo? Is it is it Lynn Patton who heads the housing region? Like 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 what are the uh, the steps you should be thinking about as this very big deal is in play and there's this organizing opportunity that comes with that? You know, in our vantage point, the targets uh, locally are the mayor and the governor, right? The mayor has to do more than just say, I've given more than any other mayor. Uh, the, the problem is uh, worse than it was before other mayors who all who helped contribute to this. So he really needs to make a serious investment um, in capital funding for public housing, as well as the governor, right? The governor, the former HUD secretary who said remarkably it was his first time being in a night of development last year when he was touring around during the election cycle, mm. needs to put uh, an annual baseline for capital in the budget uh, for NYCHA, right? Uh, Elevators don't get fixed with rhetoric. It usually takes an infusion of capital and they have to do it. So in our mind, those are the targets uh, locally. The mayor and the governor have to really uh, show their value by putting a deep investment for NYCHA in their budgets. So before we let you you out here so you can go back and do the hard work, uh, how can our listeners support these efforts if they are so inclined? So. You know, for folks who are interested, we'd love for you guys to check out uh, the work we do online, uh, cvhaction.org. Uh, we are located in the People's Republic of East Harlem, formerly known as El Barrio. Uh, always welcome to drop in the office. There's almost someone always there at uh, 115 East 106th Street, but they can find us cvhaction.org. Thank you, Afia Atamensa Esquire, the Thank Executive you. Director of Community Voices Heard. We really appreciate you stopping by, and we really appreciate the work that you've done and continue to do. Thank you. I'm just so excited to be on, like, the baddest podcast ever. This is <laughs> well, made a, my week. <laughs> that's what we've heard. As they say, you know, that's just what people say, but a whole bunch of people say it. Say it. That's, what's, that's the talk in the streets. <laughs> you heard. <laughs> Here's Alex Lynn back from Thailand. Um, and talking about Wednesday's hearing in Albany about sexual harassment. Good morning, everybody. This is Alex Brooklyn for FAQ NYC. In December, FAQ did an episode about sex crimes in Albany. We went over 25 years or so of some pretty severe and damning history concerning sexual harassment and assault in our state legislature. We spoke with Leah Ebert and Erica Vladimir, who were part of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, running a campaign for a harassment-free Albany. The working group was started by seven staffers who had all experienced sexual misconduct and a horrifying procedure of dismissal and cover-up when they tried to report it. The sexual harassment working group were pushing to have an open hearing before the legislature in order to get better protections for victims. Finally, on Wednesday, February 13th, they had that moment. 
It was captivating hearing their stories and their thoughts on the law and policy changes needed to protect other women from the same experiences. On Tuesday, the working group held a press conference in Manhattan, and I was able to speak with Rita Passarell, another member of the sexual harassment working group. Um, Everyone can hear them. How are you? Guys, how do you guys feel about that part of it? I mean, does it still? It's, it's sometimes it's hard. What's for me the most hard is hearing the other people's stories. I think that that's kind of a common thing that people say too. But. Um, Hearing the commonalities between the stories is what is so hard and so enraging, really, because Elizabeth Brothers worked in the assembly in 2001, and what is similar, her, so the severity of what happened to her is, it's much more severe than what happened to me, which is what I was told, I was told how to dress, wear heels, wear skirts. Some people might say, who cares, but that impacts your workplace as well. So the similarity is when the harassment was reported, it was not taken seriously, and it was taken to be as, you know, kind of a, a problem to do away with instead of something to solve and protect future workers. So that's what makes me the most angry, and that's what makes it most difficult to talk about, hearing how it's like, it's again and again and again. So. When you guys talk about changing the culture, you can describe how it's hard to hear somebody not being taken seriously. How many women are willing or comfortable say speaking about really the tenor of what it feels yes. like to be in one of those rooms. I think two main things about this. Number one, it's about kind of taking the narrative of your story back. But also, it's about giving the experiences to the legislators saying, here's, here's what the impact on me was. You, as a legislator, it's your job to figure out what to do with that and boil that down into a law that will prevent future workers from feeling that harm. Do you trust them to do that? I trust that they have the ability to learn. And the reason that we want hearings is that it raises the profile and then invites input from experts, workers, and keeps an eye on the process. So transparency, I think, is key in getting good laws. What we're also hoping is just that hearing all the details together kind of hones them into categories, and it shows things like the power imbalances that is common to all workplaces. And that is, and hearing the details of how it came out is, I think, where we will have some victory in getting protections in the law, because when you're theorizing about what should happen in a workplace, it doesn't really mean much until you hear about how a protection or law didn't work in a workplace. And um, there's two things about the Senate flipping, right? There's one is like, oh, yay, maybe we could trust these legislators more to like glean nuanced information from sexual stories. Hooray. But then there's also the, do you think that there is a possibility it was like, well, that was the old guard. That's the IDC and before that, Sheldon Silver. So like, this is new blood. We're blue. Like, we don't yeah. have to worry. Is there so, I always temper my hope, but I'll say that no matter who is holding the office, we will be pushing for improved protections. So as resistant or as accepting as any particular office holder or political balance maybe, we're going to be there pushing for change and raising the voices of people that this has happened to. And I think that it comes to a point where regardless of who's in the office, the tide turns and workers are saying, you have to do this.
I also got the chance to talk with Patricia Gunning, who, as a top New York prosecutor, found herself having to navigate some of the pitfalls that she had previously walked other victims of sexual assault through. I was very, in my experience, I was somewhat isolated. I was at the top of my agency. I called out my boss. And ultimately, that led to me being fired. And, um... And a, and a course of retaliation and, and, and uh, a number of other things. After the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I, I wrote about it and I sent it to a number of newspapers it was picked up. And in spite of the fact that there was pretty competent evidence in my case, uh, the Justice Center denied that this had happened to me. And it, it made me um, become more intent on speaking out about it. And at some point... Uh, uh, Erica from the working group reached out to me, and it it was really um, incredible because up until that point, and I, people had reached out to me privately, but they, but they didn't they couldn't reach out to me publicly. Um, and so when she reached out, it was uh, you know a moment where I felt a lot less alone. And I had dealt with victims and investigations and these types of complaints my whole career. So being on the other side of one was um, a real change and an education for me. I'm interested in, in that part of it because us, and as someone who had to create a safe space for other victims to share that, what kind of things do you think you realize eventually becoming victimized yourself? You know, I, I have, over the course of my career, become very good at supporting victims through the process. Um, in, in my case, I was entirely alone, and my colleagues at, in my workplace could not um, support me because it would have been at their own peril. Um, at the same time, there were women in leadership at my agency that um, um, treated me like a pariah <laughs> for having spoken out. And um, that was very, very painful for me. So I don't know if I answered your question, but it was really painful. You, you, you know, I, I can't... The process itself is so flawed in, in Albany, the way that, um, you know, a, a person at my level couldn't figure out where to go and how to report. And when I did, I was met with a really um, poor response, a poor investigation, like an utter denial of what happened in spite of the fact that there were many witnesses in my workplace to what was going on. So that was tough. This yeah. So. To find out a little more about the public hearings that were held on February 13th in Albany on sexual harassment, you can visit www.harassmentfreealbany.com. Hey, this is uh, producer Alex Brooklyn. And just as I got back from Thailand, we are going to take a week long break. So there will be no FAQ NYC next week. Stay tuned as the following week will be back full force. May the force be with you. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at the McSilver Institute, where we're headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU. And a special thank you to City Council Member Jimmy Van Bramer, Afia Atamensa Esquire, 
Alex Brooklyn, Beck from Thailand, Sarah Shears, and Victoria Bekempis, and also to our producer, Jordan Gasparay. And a special shout-out to Adam Kamara, who set up the equipment at McSilver and is mixing the show this week. And remember, if you have to ask, tune into the fact for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all. Have a good one. New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.